Hello to everyone. Welcome to the McGill International Review podcast section. My name is Ines Family, and I am your host for today's podcast. Today, we're going to dive into the abortion subject, mainly because of what happened um, in the United States recently, uh, but also around the issue more generally. Uh, for that, we are in the company of two speakers who will debate on the subject and exchange their different points of views. So we are here with Anya Naron, a writer at the McGill's International Review Journal. She will be representing the pro-choice arguments. Hi, Anya. Hi, everyone. Um, and we are also here with Josie Lutke, Lutke, sorry. Uh, Josie is part of the National March for Life Organizing Committee members, and she is the Director of Education and Advocacy for the Campaign Life Coalition. Um, today, we, Josie will be representing the pro-life argument. Hi, Josie. Hi. Okay, so before we begin, a little bit of um, context. Um, so back in history, in 1973, the Supreme Court had ruled that women were able to get abortions during the first three months of their pregnancy, even though states were allowed to restrict or ban abortions in the second and third trimester. However, on June 20, uh, June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court of the United States of America has allowed for individual states to ban or severely restrict the ability for pregnant women to get abortions. What does this mean? Abortion isn't completely banned in the US. However, at this moment, states have the right to choose individually. According to the New York Times, by now, 13 states have completely banned abortions even for cases of rape or incest. Um, there, Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Nevertheless, the journal mentions that about half of the states are expected to enact bans on abortion or other gestational limits on the procedure. So uh, my first question, I'm going to start with uh, Josie. Um, so basically, why? what are the reasons that you are pro-life? Uh, maybe there's religious, religious beliefs, political beliefs, uh, personal points of view or experiences, um, or maybe economic um, arguments for the country in general. Uh, so I am religious. Um, however, there are plenty of non-religious pro-lifers. Um, to put it as simply as I can, um, I'm pro-life um, because I believe in the following argument. Um, it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. Abortion kills innocent human beings, and therefore abortion is wrong. Um, so I was a philosophy major. Um, that's something we call a syllogism in philosophy. So if the first two premises are correct, then the conclusion has to be correct as well. So the idea that abortion kills human beings, um, it is disputed um, in public, but there is a consensus in science um, that that is correct. Um, there was a survey done of over 5,000 biologists and 95% of them agree that life begins at fertilization. Um, the very purpose of abortion is to kill that human life. In fact, if you don't end up with a dead fetus at the end of the procedure, it is considered a failed or unsuccessful abortion. So I don't really think that that premise can be disputed when you look at the evidence. The idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, that is very widely disputed. And I think it's a very complicated debate. So I'm very happy to be able to talk about it today. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons, like it, it sounds like a very nice premise. Most people agree, yeah, it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, but there could be exceptions or that might actually be um, a premise that, again, sounds nice, but when we think about it, it's actually not entirely true. It could be it's only wrong to kill persons or it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, except if you're doing so in self-defense. Um, so I, I hope that we'll be able to talk further about those reasons later on. I don't want to take up too much time now, um, but 
again, while I recognize those arguments, I don't think that any of them are compelling. I think at the end of the day, um, our general prohibition in society against killing innocent human beings is very, very strong. And you would need a very good reason to justify doing so. And I don't think that um, any of those reasons are sufficient when it comes to abortion. And that's not to say I think pregnancy is easy. I think it's very, very difficult um, in many circumstances. I think it's difficult even in the best of circumstances. Um, I just take the position that we should work to solve those problems without taking the life of an innocent human being. So that's why I'm pro-life. Um, thank you very much for your answer. We'll come back on certain points uh, that you mentioned a little bit later. But first, I'm also going to ask the question to Anya. So why? what are the reasons that you are pro-choice? Uh, again, political beliefs, feminism, um, personal point of view or experiences? So the way I see abortion is I see abortion as a woman's issue. I see it as a right to privacy, um, a right to bodily autonomy, and as well as a right to health care as well. Um, I, the way I see abortion is it's a form of sexual and reproductive health care. For many women, many women get abortions because there's dangers to not getting an abortion for them. Uh, as Josie mentioned, pregnancy is hard and pregnancy can be very risky. And sometimes pregnancy is even more harmful than abortion. Um, that's something I hope to kind of discuss a little bit later on and just kind of building onto that, it's a woman's rights issue. It's every woman, I believe, has a right to her own body choices and has her right to life and liberty. With government interference in a government, and oftentimes it's men making these laws and men making these legislatures, men saying what a woman can and can't do with her body, I believe that that goes against you know personal bodily autonomy and it goes against bodily integrity from laws and government regulations. Um, I believe government is there to set laws and regulations that is going to benefit the greater of society. But when it comes to a woman's choices, when it comes to her health care and what she decides to do with her body, that's her choice. And it's a right that she has to make those choices for herself, for whether it's for financial reasons or it's health reasons or uh, in cases of rape and incest. Um, at the end of the day, I believe the choice is hers on what she decides to do with her body. And that's not a choice that pertains to the greater of society. And beyond that pertains to legislate, legislative makers and, you know, politicians and whatnot. That's uh, kind of my short and sweet summary of why I'm pro-choice. Okay, um, just before we continue, I'm going to stop on something that Josie said uh, about human beings. Uh, a whole entire part of the debate is that do we consider um, the fetus or the life that is growing um, inside, do we consider it, consider it already a human being? Um, is it fair to, to say that uh, since it's not like fully constructed, it is not human? Or on the contrary, is it fair to say that it is just um, for now a fetus and so that we are not killing technically um, anything. What do you guys um, think about that? Um, maybe I can start on this one, yeah. Josie. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, for me, I don't consider it a human being. I don't refer to the fetus in a woman's body in the early stages of pregnancy to be a human being or to be a, a human life. For me, the human life that's at discussion and the human uh, human life that's at the forefront of the abortion debate is that of the mother, uh, of the woman that's carrying the pregnancy. Um, most uh, uh, pregnancies are terminated by 24 weeks, and that's kind of the upper limit for when pregnancies are actually, you know, considered to become human life. Um, just like after like doing some research and all, up until about 26 weeks into pregnancy, the neuro, uh, neuro and anatomical apparatus required for pain and sensation is not complete until about 26 weeks into pregnancy. So up until 26 weeks, it's still a fetus. It's still cells that are developing. Um, and by the 26 week mark, most pregnancies are terminated. Most women have decided if they're going to keep the fetus or if they're going to go through with an abortion. So at that point, um, I don't consider it to be a fetus. Um, a lot of the times an argument is made that, you know, the fetus can feel pain and feel sensation, but 
in the early stages of development when women are typically getting abortions in the first few weeks, even first, you know, month or two months, um, fetuses in the early stages of development, they lack the developed nervous system and brain to feel pain or even be aware of their surroundings. So for that reason, I, I see it as a fetus and not as a human life. For me, a human life is someone that feels pain and sensations and has emotions. And to me, the human life that's at the forefront of this debate, as I mentioned earlier, is, is the women's, it's the mother's. Okay. Um, Josie, at what point do you consider the fetus being human life? Is it as soon as it's conceived? Uh, is it after a week or two weeks? Yeah, so I would say fertilization. And again, uh, over 5,000 biologists who are surveyed, 95% would also say fertilization. So can I ask a clarifying question, Anya, when you say that you don't believe it's a human being, are you speaking from like a scientific perspective? Or are you speaking more philosophically in terms of like personhood or like someone who has value? Or are you making a scientific claim there? Yeah, I think it's a, a mixture of both. For me, it stems from like this, as I mentioned, um, you're, you're, you're not feeling sensations or pains up until 24 weeks of pregnancy, right? So that's kind of the scientific aspect of it where, you know, your limbs are not fully developed until that point, where up until the point where most abortions take place, that your limbs yeah. are not fully developed. Um, you're not feeling pain and sensation. But there's also that philosophical aspect to it where it's, you know, your emotions, your livelihood, it's the mother's livelihood that's kind of at stake. And I believe should be the forefront of the conversation. You know, the woman has a life already. The woman has emotions and other feelings that the fetus, I just believe, does not. So I, I'm i not sure at what point the fetus feels pain. Um, and there is some debate about that. There's great philosophical debate about that too. Um, if a animal is responding as if they feel pain, is that just reflexive or do they really have a sensation of that? Um, I don't, I, I do want to address that. Um, but I, again, um, I think the question of when human life begins is super, super important to this debate. Because if I didn't think we were dealing with a human being here, I would say have an, as many abortions as you want for any reason, no reason whatsoever. You're absolutely right, Anya, that it is an injustice um, for us to be restricting this procedure. So I really think that, um, again, this question is super fundamental to everything we're talking about, which is why I do want to fully clarify your position. Um, prior to 26 weeks, prior to wherever we want to say the ability to feel pain is, um, do you think we're dealing with a human organism at all? Like when I say human organism, a member of the species Homo sapiens, or would you disagree with that? Because that's how I'm defining human being as a like a human organism, member of the species. Well, getting into like the science technicalities, right? It's uh, human organisms are can be anything from as simple to a clump of cells, right? So if we want to define like human organisms as a clump of cells that, you know, have like biological mechanisms and all like, then it's a human organism technically. But I think saying a human organism can, you know, bacteria is an organism, viruses are organisms, right? Getting into those like science technicalities. But to me, a human life implies more of that philosophical debate as well, too. Um, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, too. Whether to me it is like a human life or not, I think is still not the priority when talking about yeah, um, sure. why abortion, abortion is so important for a woman's health and for women's rights. Um, but if we want to classify it as like a human organism, a lot of things are like organisms, a clump of cells yeah. are organisms. But that doesn't necessarily dictate to me that that's human life. To me, human life is when, you know, you have a full-fledged like arms and limbs, and you are your neurological systems being developed. Your your other systems are being developed in the body. That's a human life. Organisms, a clump of cells. That's like a fetus to me. It's a clump of cells. It's like the fetus. That's an organism. Sure. So. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that even if you think that the preborn are human beings, that you still might think abortion is justified for some of the reasons you mentioned, um, like bodily autonomy. Um, what I'm saying is that if it's not a human organism, you don't even need any of those reasons like bodily autonomy or whatever to justify abortion. So that's, again, it's a crux of my argument. Um, so some clarifications, um, like even in the first trimester, um, like by six weeks, that 
um, embryo does have limbs at that point. It has hands, it has fingers. So the majority of abortions still take place after that point. Um, so they, they are happening to more than just a clump of cells. They are happening to what we would recognize as a human being with a head and arms and legs and fingers and all of that. That said, I don't think that that's what makes you a human being. And I don't think that's what makes you valuable. Um, for instance, if, you know, if, if I reveal like, oh, look, I only have one leg, that doesn't make me less human by any means. Um, and then also there's, there's rare cases where people are born without pain receptors and it can actually be dangerous for them um, if they touch a hot stove or whatever, they don't realize that they're like burning their finger. Um, so I don't think that the ability to feel pain is what gives us our value. And I don't think that, um, you know, other things like emotion or neurological development, obviously they're, they're important. Um, they're, you know, what allow us to have this debate right now. Um, it's part of the human experience, but you're gonna find that that varies a lot from person to person. Um, some people, you know, are, are greatly neurologically developed, um, very intelligent, capable of reasoning. And there's some people with severe disabilities who not only are not going to have as complex neural development as other human beings, um, but also there's some human beings who, again, have very limited emotional range and don't feel the same range of emotions as other human beings do. I don't think any of that impacts our value. Again, those are valuable characteristics to have. Um, but I think if we look around and see all of these differences between human beings um, and we ask ourselves, why do we nonetheless you know, consider everyone to be equal? Um, I think the answer at the end of the day is going to be our humanness um, and that that's sufficient for deserving of protection. Um, so I can trace my existence back to the time when I was a fetus before I could feel pain um, before I'm fully developed, like that development is going to continue after birth as well. Um, so I, I can trace my existence back to when I was fetus, back to when I was an embryo, back to when I was a single celled zygote. Um, at the moment of fertilization, everything about me, my hair color, eye color, shape of my face, ears, that was determined at the moment of like, fertilization. Um, that was me. That was a very young human organism, um, that eventually developed into the person talking and having this debate right now. Um, so I believe that all human beings deserve protection from the moment they come into existence. Um, so and for, yeah, that would be, that would be the source of value for me. Human sorry beings. to cut you here, but, um, some pro-choice, um, people argue that, um, according to some philosophists, uh, being a human being, um, is defined by the fact that you have a conscience of yourself. And so they would argue that when you are a fetus, we don't know, we, we don't know really if the fetus has a conscience of itself, but it's likely that he doesn't. So it's also interesting, like you, uh, you guys argued some scientific facts and also some more philosophist or political facts. And I think a mix of all of that is what makes this debate uh, interesting because you cannot only work with science, but you can also not only work with uh, politics or philosophy and all of that. So thank you for that. Um, I'm gonna go on to the next questions. Maybe we'll uh, go back to some things you said uh, afterwards. So, do you think that the world's most powerful nations uh, acting this way, taking this act um, is maybe, maybe sends a message to the rest of the world? And if yes, why? And which one? And what, what would you like it to be? And what would you not like it to be? Sure, I can like go ahead with this one as well. Um, just because my article, the, the one I wrote for the MIR, it talks about the battle of abortion goes beyond just the decision of the United States and it's titled Step Up or Stay Quiet. It's the international battle of abortion. So I start off like my article kind of talking about the United States like decision and how they overturned Roe v. Wade and overturned kind of um, protecting abortion rights in all states and whatnot. Um, the main point of my article is really to talk about how this decision made by the United States goes beyond the borders. So some of the world's most powerful nations, the United States being, I think, the forefront of our discussion today, um, it goes to say their decisions impact the rest of the community and the rest of the global community. 
So the global gag rule, which is like a, another main, you know, cornerstone of my article, talks about how what essentially the global gag rule is. It's any foreign organizations, any countries that are receiving health assistance from the United States, health do donations from the United States. Um, these foreign organizations and foreign countries are prohibited from providing information, referrals or services about legal abortions. And this even goes to just um, sexual and reproductive health care as a whole. So when we have a rule like the global gag rule in play, we see how other countries are no longer able to provide safe abortions, are no longer able to provide the range of sexual and reproductive health care that a lot of women living in low income and even middle income countries really require. So the global gag rule was overturned or was repealed by Joe Biden once he took office. But we still see the impacts of that policy today. For example, we see a lot of diminished reproductive health care and humanitarian aid services. Um, there's disruption to the countries that were receiving U.S. donations and U.S. health care funding. We see reduced advocacy work in countries that really do need it. Um, and also high costs for these low income countries to kind of recover from the impacts of the policy. Um, it's disrupted a various a number of uh, health net healthcare networks, um, integrated health programs, and it's diverted resources away from sexual healthcare as a whole. So to me, it's not just a debate of abortion or no abortion, right? That would be a, a simplification of the issue, but it becomes about you know women's healthcare and reproduction as a whole in these you know low income countries. Um, I kind of talk about how specifically this issue extends to Africa as a whole. Um, for example, Madagascar was forced to close over 100 public and 90 private health facilities and reduce outcare services. So yes, this limited abortion access for rural women, but it also limited other access to like other health care that you know, women need in Africa. Um, we also see how once Roe v. Wade did get overturned, a lot of other countries in Africa, such as Malawi, Senegal, Kenya, um, their nation, their national policymakers, you know, took to the abortion legislature in the U.S. as kind of, all right, now this is our chance as well to kind of follow in the United States footsteps. There, there was a rise in anti-choice and anti-abortion civil society movements since the leaked draft of Roe v. Wade even came into play. And once the leaked draft was actually confirmed to be true and Roe v. Wade was overturned, we saw the increase of anti-abortion ideology spread like in the snap throughout Africa as a whole. Um, specifically, I did some research like into Kenya for my article and I saw like 26 pro-life groups in Kenya consisting predominantly of the Christian community, con consisting of Catholic bishops and Catholic members of parliament, they kind of rallied together to strike down memorandum that was a 2019 re reproductive health care bill. So that 2019 reproductive health care bill in Kenya allowed for greater, greater sexual and reproductive health care, which included abortion, but it also included things like surrogacy rights and other like fertility health care and same sex unions as well. So you know, the wave of anti-abortion ideology in the US, we can see how it spread to other countries. And it's quite harmful, especially in countries that already have those weaker healthcare systems. We see those weaker healthcare systems become even more disrupted and even just, you know, more weak, essentially. Okay, thank you. That was quite good. Um, Josie, do you have any anything to add on to that or maybe respond to some things that Anya said? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with her that I think that the decision definitely does have global implications. Um, I think one of them is that um, it prompts people to have this exact debate, um, that it calls into question the idea of abortion as a right, um, and that, you know, even after you know, five decades that we can still re-examine these decisions and look back at them. Um, and I hope that it, it causes everyone to, to do their own research on the subject. Um, I'm also going to agree with Anya that it's um, very important um, that we support women's health in developing nations. Um, 100% on board with that. Um, obviously, being pro-life, I'm not going to support the killing of innocent human beings. Like for me, that's not helping Africa to kill their pre-born children. And as a whole, the continent is largely pro-life. And that's why you see a lot of restrictions on abortion. In some languages, actually, they don't even have a word for abortion. Um, one woman um, who I would refer listeners to, Obianuju Ikiocha, she heads up Culture of Life Africa. And she's done um, a number of projects to um, cast light onto Canada's 
foreign aid funding. Um, so while the U.S. had the global gag rule in place, Canada actually increased its funding of abortion. Um, but she calls it ideological colonization, because again, the sentiment in Africa is largely pro-life. But what Canada and other countries are doing is that they're actually making foreign aid conditional upon support for abortion um, and SRHR, sexual reproductive health and rights, um, which includes, again, things that are foreign to many African cultures. Um, and so they're told that if you want this money, you if you want this funding, then you have to change your abortion um, law or you have to allow these um, abortion clinics into your country. Um, so I think that's the other side of the coin here. Um, so I would, again, advocate for funding for maternal health um, that isn't conditional upon support for abortion and doesn't involve the killing of, of human beings. Um, I definitely don't want anyone dying, including women. Um, but again, abortion by definition to be successful entails the killing of an innocent human being. And that's by definition unsafe for that human being. So I'm, I'm again, all for the development of African nations. Um, I want them to succeed, but that also includes their pre-born children. I want those children to be born and um, most African mothers do too. Okay, um, so another point that I wanted to talk about is that many people advocate that there were abortions before abortion was even legal. And so some people think that the, the prohibition, pro prohibition of abortion won't really change anything and that people will just do it illegally. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that um, making it illegal is going to help with stopping it? And um, if yes, maybe that means that you think there should be some kind of sentence uh, for that now crime in the United States. Uh, so what would that sentence look like? Because um, according to pro-life uh, speakers, uh, such as you, uh, Josie, um, abortion is technically a murder. So we know that uh, murder is an important crime and it's a heavy crime. So what would the penalty look like? What would what would it be? Would it be prison in some states? Maybe the death penalty? What what will it look like to you? That's kind of two questions in one, I know. But uh, Josie, you can begin and then um, Anya, maybe you can add on. Sure. Um, so to get to the first part of your question, um, we've already seen evidence of the abortion rate decreasing um, in the United States. Um, and we also saw that um, even prior to the returning of Roe v. Wade um, when Texas um, implemented its law. I, I, I definitely acknowledge that there are still going to be abortions that happen illegally. Um, and again, I'm here because I believe um, in equal rights for all human beings. Um, so I don't want women dying. I don't want them putting themselves in harm's way, um, be it for uh, a legal or illegal abortion. Um, I do think that... Um, I think that they're also, the fears can be overblown. Um, for instance, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, he was the co-founder of NARAL, um, which is now the National Abortion Rights Action League. Um, and he he used to be an abortionist. Um, he became pro-life and he said that they lied about the number of women dying um, from illegal abortions and they lied to advance their case. Um, so I, I think that we will see a shift um, in culture. And there are some women who only get abortions today because they're legal and they wouldn't get it if they were illegal. Um, I do think you will see legal abortions though. Um, I, th I think you're already seeing a huge push for quote unquote self-managed abortions, especially through chemical means, um, like the abortion pill. Um, again, don't want women to die. I don't think that justifies killing innocent human beings again. Um, if we were talking about killing toddlers, for instance, um, we wouldn't be talking about making it safer for a woman to kill her toddler. Um, we would just tell her not to kill toddlers. Um, and again, that's honestly how I see the preborn. So that brings us to the second part of your question, which is what should we do about women who get abortions? Um, so I'll say at the offset, like I have dear friends who are post-abortive. Um, I 
speak very strongly and condemn abortion I, that I have no judgment for anyone involved. Um, and, and I mean that sincerely. Um, so I think that there's a lot of nuance in that question. Um, and I think that there is some nuance today when we look at homicide, um, like you can look at um, whether there were mitigating factors. Um, and you and you always there's in law, there's the actus reus and there's the mens rea. Um, and you don't have a conviction unless you have both. So I think with a lot of cases where women are getting abortions, um, they genuinely don't believe that they're killing a human being. Um, and so I think that, that you have a strong argument that they lack the appropriate mens rea to convict them. So in a lot of cases, I would support going after the abortionist um, who knows what he's doing. Like he literally goes in and rips off the child's limbs. Um, and then he has to count those limbs afterward to make sure that there's no pieces remaining in that woman's uterus um, or else she can get an infection or something like that. So he knows that it's a human being. Um, he knows what he's doing. Um, so I do think that in, in that case, I would support um, criminal penalties. Um, I think that there might be some cases where a woman does know that she's killing a human being, you know, goes for repeat abortions. Um, I don't think that's the majority of cases, um, but I think that it, I would be open to considering criminal, to, criminal penalties in that case. But I, I think it really does vary. Some women get abortions because they're coerced. Um, so it would really depend on those factors for me. And then also, even if I do think that they should be penalized, I'm also a huge supporter in reforming the current um, prison system that we have. I think it should be um, better oriented towards rehabilitation and getting people back out uh, on the streets and in society. I've met former abortionists, bear them no ill will. Um, so again, despite what I'm saying, again, it's not that I think that people are murderers. I really don't think that people view it that way, um, even though again, I do think abortion is killing an innocent human being. So hopefully that kind of explains my position. Um, it's not quite simple and easy to communicate, but um, it's no. not an easy issue either. <laughs> it was perfect. Thank you. Um, Anya, do you have anything to add on or maybe you respond? Yeah, sure. I'll kind of start off by bringing up something Josie said. Um, and it was comparing the abortion debate with killing a toddler and I think that's a prime example of like a straw man fallacy where it's oversimplifying and like kind of misrepresenting the argument of abortion um because it makes it like easier to like attack and like refute what like abortion really is so it's really incomparable to you know murdering a toddler that's been alive and has a life and you know has a family and their parents have an emotional connection whatever the case may be it's it's really oversimplifying the argument of abortion and like the abortion debate really by comparing, you know, killing in a toddler that is out of the womb and has a life versus a, a fetus, right? What we're calling a fetus in this debate. Um, and I'll kind of, you know, touch on the first part of the question, Ines, about uh, kind of abortion and like unsafe abortions. I think, again, once again, it's really oversimplifying by saying, well, not that many deaths like take place as a result of unsafe abortions. Like the reality is like it is like a decent number of deaths. And even if it's not as many as we think it is, that, that doesn't make it any better. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't take away the pain like women who do have unsafe abortions have. Like it's still a huge issue. And again, like unsafe abortions is actually one of the top five causes of maternal death. So like eight to 10, eight to 11 percent of maternal deaths are a cause of unsafe abortions. And this number is only higher in those low income countries that I kind of mentioned earlier, um, especially like in countries like Africa, where doctors are one, not trained professionally to perform abortions. But there are like healthcare professionals that are performing, you know, these quote unquote back alley abortions um, because women are in such like dire need for these abortions because, you know, they can't afford it financially or they have too many kids already and they can't support another child or, um, you know, their life is at risk with this pregnancy or it was a, a case of rape or incest, whatever it may be. We see these like high rates of unsafe abortions, specifically in low income countries. Um, and even if, you know, unsafe abortions don't lead to death per se, they still lead to many long-term health complications. We often like hear the argument from pro-life people that, well, abortions can cause like, um, you know, long-term health complications, but that is only like exponentially greater when they're unsafe abortions. So a lot of like long-term health complications in a woman's like sexual and reproductive system. So, you know, say a woman did want to have a pregnancy later, unsafe abortions just make it so much harder. 
And with the trend that's currently going, a lot of abortions are now unreported because they are, you know, unsafe or ill, quote unquote, illegal abortions. So because of this, a lot of these back alley abortions go unreported and uh, go unreported. And the impact of abortion under reporting is is honestly extremely harmful on like healthcare and the healthcare system and just for like health as a whole, right? Because we don't know what the outcomes of these under uh, unreported abortions are. Um, we don't know like how they've been going. We don't know how it's been affecting women. So <clears throat> there's just horrific consequences to such abortions. And I only see it getting worse where if it's not a cause of death, then it's severe health complications for some very vulnerable women and even young girls like in the United States and even globally. Yeah, and um I think those those points were very uh very well made. Thank you both for that. But um I think um ab abortion like why did you think that they made they made a step back. What did you think that the Supreme Court made this decision, knowing that um, uh, according to the Pew Research Center, only about fifty seven percent of adults, um, uh, sorry, fifty percent, fifty seven percent of adults disapprove with the court's decision. So when do you think? they made this decision what does it say about the society and maybe what is going on in the world more generally um josie you can start maybe since anya you just talked okay um well the supreme court doesn't make its decisions based off of popular opinion thank god for that um I think it was based on the fact that abortion really isn't in the Constitution. Um, and so Roe v. Wade was genuinely wrongfully decided, um, which is why they gave the power back to the states. Though I will argue that um, really um, the Supreme Court should be recognizing the right to life of all human beings. And so it, a state shouldn't be empowered not to legislate on the abortion issue. I think it, it should be prohibited altogether. Um, so the Dobbs v. Jackson decision um, was just a recognition that um, this isn't an issue that's covered in the constitution um, and that this isn't something that the court should have ruled on in the first place. Um, and I do, I do wanna just go back for a second um, just to clarify something, um, which is when I made the comparison to toddlers, I fully understand that you don't don't view it as killing toddlers on yet. It was not meant to straw man your position in any way. It's an expression of what I genuinely believe, which is again, all human beings are equal. And so I value the preborn as much as I do toddlers. So the question of is that a fair analogy comparison for me to make is exactly up for debate here. I understand that it's um, a, a question that can be debated. Um, I only made that analogy to point out that all of these issues we're talking about rest on the question of, is this a human being that should be valued as much as every other human being? Because if it's not, then it doesn't matter what your reason for abortion is. Um, again, have as many as you'd like, none of my business. Um, but if this is a human being deserving of um, protection, then again, this wouldn't justify killing a human being even if we had concerns about a woman's health um so again it was just a way to focus it and it's not again i recognize that's not what pro-choicers think um and I, I do recognize that there are plenty of compelling arguments for the pro-choice position as well even though obviously i'm not convinced by them thank you for clarifying that and um actually a lot of um pro-lifers um do use um, this comparison maybe um we're not here to judge and say, is it fair? Is it not fair? It's part of the debate and it's part of um, arguments that are being said. So, but thank you for clarifying. Um, Anya, maybe you have something to say about the Supreme Court decision and why they did that. Yeah, I first thing, I agree with Josie. The Supreme Court is not deciding and making decisions based on popular opinion. Um, I think largely what made the shift is with 
uh, Donald Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court, they were largely responsible for kind of shaping the Supreme Court to become more conservative leaning. And now we see that the United States Supreme Court is a conservative leaning judicial body. Um, with like the recent addition of uh, Amy Coney Barrett we, in, in October 2020, all of a sudden the abortion debate, you know, shifted and took a shift in the Supreme Court. We saw that abortion rights now started to become condemned at the highest court in the United States, one of the most powerful nations in the world. And then we saw Republican lawmakers across the country that have been fighting for this suddenly have their voices uh, exponentially heard louder because the Supreme Court is kind of, you know, outwardly restricting abortion rights and outwardly speaking out against abortion. So we saw that abortion laws became more restrictive when they were strengthened by numerous like Republican appointed justices and Republicans kind of getting into power and getting into office. And for me, that's like one of the biggest issues with abortion is that the political agenda of these politicians is what is, in my opinion, restricting women's health care and women's bodily autonomy. You know, many politicians who oppose abortion rights are male politicians just because politics in the United States is still very much male dominated. So we're having a lot of men deciding and making decisions for a woman's body, um, which to me has I have my own qualms with that. Um, like I've mentioned before, I think every woman has her own bodily autonomy. But I see I take a greater issue to when I see men deciding what a woman can and cannot do with her body. Um, I'm sure Josie's heard a lot of arguments like that from pro-choice people, but it's one that I stand firmly behind. Um, and I think the poly abortion then doesn't become a right or a women's issue or a feminist issue. It becomes a political issue. And I don't think abortion should become like kind of a partisan issue or so politicized as it is now. Um, and that's simply because we see a lot of these Republican lawmakers and Republican male politicians, you know, making decisions for women and for women's bodies. But then we see those same Republican politicians that are, you know, getting women pregnant behind the scenes and are forcing these women, coercing them into having, you know, abortions and things like that. Right. So it's we really see that like double standard when we hear stories of like a Republican politician kind of coercing a woman that he got pregnant to have an abortion because he doesn't want to get caught, uh, get caught in the headlights with that news getting out. Um, but then we see that same like politician kind of speaking out against what is a woman's right, in my opinion. Yes, um, that is there's a lot of uh, controversy and um, and uh, like problems in the press uh, for the things you mentioned. So, yes, this question is is uh, actually very interesting. Who is allowed to get an abortion in what cases uh, for who? Maybe is it an is it a economic situation a problem? Is it a an image problem, religious problem? That is the debate could go on forever. Uh, however, we do have to finish sometime. So if you have anything that you would like to add on, a share anything particular that you want to talk about that we didn't uh, mention, feel free to do so now, and then we can um wrap up can we talk about bodily autonomy um because that is one of the compelling pro-choice arguments um that i think is deserving of, of time um can i ask um anya have you heard about thalidomide before i have not so enlighten me <laughs> so it was a drug used um in the late 50s and early 60s to relieve morning sickness um but they stopped using it when they found out that it would deform the fetus such that he or she wouldn't properly develop arms and legs. Um, so if hypothetically we were considering um, whether or not to permit women to take thalidomide today, knowing the damage that it does to the fetus, I know you've, you've just heard about it, but like, do you, would you have any instincts about what, like whether this should be permitted or not? Um, well, my first instinct, my first reaction to that would be, well, no, obviously we should not. You know, if we know that drug is, you know, doing harm to a fetus, especially to a fetus that a woman wants to keep and a woman wants to have a healthy baby, then of course not. Yeah. So most people would agree. Um, so I think that that does establish there are limits to bodily autonomy. You can't do whatever you want with your body, even if a fetus exists within it. Um, in this case, we would think it wrong to 
do something that we would know we would know would deform that fetus um, and cause that child to have a very difficult future living with a disability. Um, so I would put it by the same token that it's wrong to deprive of that child of a future altogether. So again, if we're thinking about limits to bodily autonomy, I, I would think that killing that child should be something that's permitted, it's prohibited. Um, again, largely in favor of women's bodily autonomy, being a woman myself, like I like to make decisions, but I think certain choices, like the choice to take thalidomide or the choice to deprive that child from a future altogether, that shouldn't be allowed in society. And I would also add that parents have an obligation to care for their offspring. So for instance, um, if a mom had a newborn baby, um, didn't have access to any formula, and that baby was at risk of starving, she would be obligated to breastfeed that child. You know, that's a very intimate body part, but that's perfectly consistent with what the function of breast is supposed to be, breastfeed. So again, if the only possibility there is the child starves to death or you use your own body to care for your child, you'd be obligated to do so. In the same way, the purpose of the uterus is to house a child. So I would think that if the only other alternative is to kill that innocent human being, um, a woman is obligated to give birth to that child if she doesn't want to raise a child after that then certainly she can place that child um up uh for adoption um but again that's to say that again i, I recognize we have a default right to bodily autonomy i do think there's limits to that right um and there's limits and there's also parental obligations that need to be balanced with that yeah something i want to like a couple of things i want to touch on in that um I'm not going to even like get into the discussion of like the adoption system and the foster system and that whole thing. Um, that's a, that's another like discussion of its own. And with that discussion, we could go on forever and ever. Um, but as you mentioned, Josie, right, the parent after giving birth, you want to provide it the best life possible. You have an obligation to take care of that child. Absolutely. So the question becomes then, in my opinion, is what do you do if you know you won't be able to take care of that child or you, you know you can't provide that child with a life that every child does deserve? And I think that's where abortion as a racial justice issue comes into play. Um, I think many pro-life people ignore the fundamental, like, reasons of racial and ethnic abortion disparities so you know women of color predominantly black women living in the united states do get abortions at a higher rate than their caucasian counterparts and the reason for this is a lot of like socioeconomic reasons uh things like that you know just racial issues in america as a whole you know we know women of lower socioeconomic status are more likely to experience an unintended pregnancy and that comes from you know different life events traumatic life events um and things like that. And at-risk women tend to be like minority races. So that like speaks to geographic and financial access, like traumatic life events, such as like relationship changes or, you know, crises and things like that. And when you are an at-risk woman living in lower socioeconomic areas, um, you have, it's difficult to get access to contraception. So there's like the cause of unattended pregnancy. It's difficult to get access to, you know, like proper birth control, uh, birth control pills or condoms or any, any other kind of, uh, contraception. And then we also see, speaking to the healthcare side, like Black and Latina women living in the United States bear a greater disease burden than their white counterparts. Um, and a lot of this is because of like systematic racism that affects like the reproductive healthcare and the healthcare system as a whole of the healthcare that Black women receive. Um, and I think this is like not even up for debate that the healthcare Black women do receive in the United States is not the same that their white counterparts do receive. Um, and just kind of black and indigenous women are also four times more likely to die from um, childbirth than their white counterparts as well. So that kind of speaks to the racial disparities amongst uh, for, when discussing abortion as well. And if the, the abortion ban that we did see like in the United States, who is it going to affect the most? It's going to affect at-risk women the most, younger women that are minority races the most. And that's going to increase mater maternal mortality amongst Black Americans predominantly in, by 33%. So I think for me, abortion is not just an issue of bodily autonomy, which it obviously is, or feminism or women's rights, but it also goes to speak to in these like high income countries in these like global superpowers like the United States, it really does become like a racial justice issue as well too. And it speaks to like minority races. And 
I'm not saying the solution every time, you know, for this, for, you know, the black community is, hey, get an abortion. No, and there needs to be a lot more systematic and like changes made to, you know, empower black women and empower, empower black girls. Absolutely. But it does go to speak to that for like for those women that are at risk or living in socio low, lower socioeconomic areas. Um, a lot of times abortion is their way to, you know, make a life for themselves as well, too. Um, there's also like, you know, we don't want to restrict any women or girls from, you know, completing higher education or entering the workforce, right? An 18 year old girl that does get pregnant, like, I don't see why she needs to be forced to give up her life essentially to raise a child when she probably isn't financially or emotionally ready to raise a child, right? So I 100% agree that with you, Josie, that I think once you bring a, a child into this world, it is your responsibility as a parent to give it the best life possible. And if you know that I don't have the financial means to do so, I don't have the emotional capacity to do so, I'm not mature enough to bring a child into this world and provide it with the best life possible, um, I see no reason why we need to restrict that choice on a woman's part if she knows right um that I can't give this child the best life that they deserve yeah um no I I, I agree with you that there's huge problems with racism and problems with the U.S. healthcare system I would hate to be a pregnant woman in the U.S. frankly um and I agree that abortion is a racial justice issue um but I take the, the opposite approach obviously um Planned Parenthood um, was founded by Margaret Sanger, who was a known racist and eugenicist. Um, so the fact that, you know, her dream is being achieved today um, because there's more abortions um, being conducted um, on Black women and Latino women, um, you know, that's a huge problem for me because more Black preborn babies are being killed. Um, and that is the epitome of racism for me. Um, it's, you're literally, you know, killing these these preborn children. So I, I really think that that's what the debate, debate is going to keep coming back to is the question of are we killing an innocent human being in an abortion? Um, and does that human being matter as much inside a womb as he or she does outside the womb? Um, and my answer is yes, um, that that life in the womb. Um, obviously, there's there's differences. Um, but those differences um, with, you know, size and level of development and environment um, and degree of dependency, they're also going to apply after birth as well. Um, uh, you know, again, the process of human development is long. It doesn't actually finish until you're 25 years old. So if we view an infant, um, a newborn infant or a toddler as valuable, um, despite the fact that they're far less developed and younger than us and smaller than us, um, and they're not, to go back to something that you said earlier, Inez, um, you know, a newborn baby isn't self-aware either. Um, we still um, recognize them as valuable um, and deserving of protection. Um, so I would say that that applies to the preborn child as well. And yet, I guess it's a very complex debate, but that's what the debate hinges on is, is that question of, um, are you killing an innocent human being? And does that human being matter as much um, yeah. as you or I do? I think the the debate pretty much every time goes back to that because that's the principal thing that you um, pro-life and pro-choice people cannot agree on because that's the very basis of um, of the whole debate. And yeah, so it was super, super interesting um, having this debate. Um, so thank you very much to you both. Uh, for being here today. It was really a pleasure for me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, debating and being on the podcast. And yeah, that's it. I really thank did. So much. Yeah, thank you so much, Inez. And it was a pleasure much. debating with you, Josie. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you both. And thank you everyone for listening.